0: Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 67th episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is leading through radical change. I'm joined by Jonathan Brill, the author of Rogue Waves, Future Proof Your Business to Survive and Profit from Radical Change. The publisher is McGraw-Hill. Jonathan is the former global futurist and research director for Hewitt Packard, a board member and advisor to the chairman at Frost & Sullivan, and the futurist-in-residence at Territory Studio. He's been a consultant to numerous companies and the managing partner innovation firms that have generated over $27 billion in new revenue for customers. Welcome to the show, Jonathan.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Very much looking forward to this. A man who's from Maine, from the coast, the the Herman Melville of, of modern business literature, here to talk about rogue waves. Can't wait. Give us a brief overview of the book, if you don't mind.
1: Sure. So the idea is that we think about Black Swan events, these things that come out of nowhere, and uh, upend businesses. The, the reality of that's is that that's not how it normally happens. what What occurs is that multiple individually manageable waves of change collide to suddenly become unmanageable, to create a rogue wave. And because we can understand what those underlying waves are, we can start to make sense of what could happen next, the range of possible futures. And we can start to position ourselves, make ourselves more resilient to these types of rogue waves, and even exploit them. And it turns out that the companies that do this well, they tend to do about twice as well during disruption, and they tend to retain that growth after the fact. Okay. That's
0: that's interesting. I'm going to go very much to leadership in a moment uh because I think the quality of the leadership, their nature of their resiliency is all important here. I'm going to start with at least a few of these these trends that you mentioned in the book. There's I think what 10 of them in all. <clears throat> so what I'm interested in is the kind of the convergence as it were of artificial intelligence and automation and the need to upskill and prepare ourselves for a different world and we're eq is going to matter a lot so one trend is automation that's i think number three in your list number one was changing demographics trend number six was emerging technologies including artificial intelligence can you talk to me about that particular convergence
1: that creates a a rogue wave Absolutely. Uh, when we take a look out at the, the future, you know, we've been watching for the last number of years as uh, management consultancies and technology consultancies tell us that automation is going to be easy, uh, that it's going to make us piles of money, uh, or that it's going to be um, uh, that we're going to have a labor shortage and therefore uh, we're going to need to automate. The reality is that both of these things are true. And the AI is a part of that puzzle, but the reality of uh, creating new types of work is that uh, it's very rare for entire jobs to disappear. And it turns out that typically only individual, you know, com- component tasks disappear. So, um, uh, you know, the job of graphic design hasn't disappeared, but PowerPoint made it something that I could do as an individual instead of always needing to hire a a team to make my presentations for me. That's going to happen more and more and more uh, through technologies like artificial intelligence, through technologies uh, like the Internet of Things, um, and through technologies like blockchain that make it easier to uh, do things like uh, create and automate uh, the production of contracts. And so when we take a look at changing demographics, uh, you know, the big issue is that we're going to have a shortage of high-skill workers uh, in the United States uh, in particularly. uh, But around the world and every country besides India by 2030, every major uh, economy besides India uh, by 2030, we're going to have a high-skill worker shortage too, uh, according to Corn Ferry. And in India, there will be about a million. I think a million two high skill workers. These are people with four year degrees. Uh, that's about enough to backfill the shortage that we're projecting in California alone. So mm-hmm. we're going to have to do something radically different in business. But I don't think it means that all the jobs are going to go away. I think it means that components of jobs will go away, and that'll kind of redefine how we leverage our workforce. Okay, um,
0: so so it won't it won't swamp ordinary workers necessarily, as long as they can make the adjustment.
1: I, I think that's the case. Okay. Um, I think that's the case, but you know, the, the reality, I think there's a second piece here that we didn't talk about. And this really goes to EQ uh, in leadership training and organizations. We've been decreasing our skills development budgets, our learning and development budgets uh, in companies for close to 40 years. As we see transformations like this, we're going to have to rethink uh, that idea that we're not going to give people time to develop skills and we're not going to pay to develop them. If that's the case, how are we going to get the new workers that we need? And a lot of those skills, like you say, Dan, you know, are about EQ. They're about understanding how to work with people, how to increase the efficiency of decision-making, how to help teams collaborate more effectively. And they're less about the techniques, right? How do I do statistics? How do I, uh, you know, click this button? And, And more about how do I think about problems probabilistically? And how do I think about what type of new button, what type of new tool to develop? You know, it used to be that if you wanted to write code, you had to hire a team of coders. We're now moving into a world where unskilled individuals can start to write software uh, using AI, much as in the same way that I learned uh, how to make PowerPoint presentations without a graphic designer. And that's going to be a huge shift if we don't give people the time to learn these, these types of skills and learn how to think about the problem as opposed to simply uh, solve the problem they already know how to solve.
0: Uh, Well, that's uh, very interesting. I did not know that the learning development budgets have been going down for 40 years. I absolutely agree with you. They're going to have to make an adjustment there. So that's the kind of, I guess I'll call it, quote unquote, the ordinary worker. If we move up one level before we get to leaders, middle managers, what Mm -hmm. does this mean in terms of, you mentioned the book that I'm going from being hand holders to specialist problem solvers. Can you elaborate on what this changed in terms of AI and automation and upskilling means for, for middle management.
1: When I think about uh, what what's called executive judgment and the learning and development parlance, that's been a thing that we really focus on and like the VP level, SVP level, certainly in the C-suite is like, how do you solve unsolvable problems? How do you teach people how to kind of do the the, the Sherlock Holmes uh, Sherlock Holmes types of tricks. Um, And the reality is, as we move faster, as the world gets more complex, uh, as companies get flatter, people lower in the organization are going to have to have those skills too. Uh, and they're also going to have to have a broader understanding of, uh, of cross-functional activities. So they're going to have to really not be general managers, but understand the organizational context in the way that general managers do today in terms of how does finance work? How do operations work? What, what does the external environment look like? And uh, what are the components of our strategy? And, and how will we know we're on target in terms of things like demand generation?
0: Okay so basically we're all going back to school cuz uh, the, the 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 workers have to be better um and adaptive the the middle managers have to be cross functional and then we're we're going to move on here to the executive suite and they have the same requirements and more um so let me you know pun intended the book is called Rogue Wave I mean you do actually invoke the term sea change fairly early in the book Human nature does not necessarily welcome change, however. I remember someone once saying to me, I guess it's a cliche, uh, that about the only person on the planet who welcomes change is a baby with a dirty diaper.
1: <laughs> uh,
0: so what in your experience, and you've had close-up working relations with executives, yeah. what have you seen? What what type of personality, what type of skill set uh, in an executive most allows them to make these kind of rapid and frequent and even radical changes that are increasingly necessary?
1: I I think it's a twofold question, especially in larger organizations or or organizations with with complex operations and and defined product market fit, which is how much change can the organization absorb at any one time? And if a leader starts pulling all of the levers at the same time, can the organization handle that? So okay. it, it's a two it's a twofold question, right? What's the personality type that, exe- that can accept change, and the second is can that personality type uh, smoothly turn the ship? Uh, and and that's a that's a challenging question. Uh, it it kind of reminds me in a lot of ways of. You know, in Vietnam, there was this question of what kind of fighter pilots do you want to train? Do you want to train really reliable people because in peacetime they're not going to cause problems, or do you want to bring in mavericks? You know, like in like Maverick and Top Gun uh, to to shake things up because in a dogfight they're the people who are going to win. And I, I think it's a balance. You know, in terms of your culture. Do you want to grow do you want to grow a reliable leader into an innovative leader, or do you want to grow an innovative leader into a reliable leader because they're different personality types and there's there's deep growth work that has to happen in both cases,
0: okay, I think that's a very fair answer. So let me go back to the two parts you just laid out because I think they're worth exploring uh because we are talking so much here about change. so an organization's ability to absorb change. What kinds of, I mean, have you seen certain sectors of the economy that do better with this? Have you seen, uh, you know, profile of, I don't know, different companies tend to attract different kinds of workers, maybe sometimes by location, uh, year when they were hired in, so on and so forth. What what are the characteristics of of companies that absorb change well? What kind of tips and tactics work for absorbing change well? Where the failures occur and why? I mean, take that question any place you want.
1: So, 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 so many questions within that question. I, there I, are, there are I love indeed. It. Um, when I, I think there are two ways to look at it. One is tops down, and the second is bottoms up. It, at the end of the day, uh, if the board is not going to accept change, the organization is not going to accept change. Fair. So, yep. so that's the first question: is Is the board up for <laughs> for the journey? Uh, if they're not, you're going to have a, a you know you're going to have a you know the CEO parade. Um, the second question is, do the people accept change? Well, you know, I I think it's been pretty amazing to watch the last year, uh, in conservative organizations and so on and so forth. Um, and how well they've actually responded to COVID, right. Uh, throughout the organization, right. People who, you know, managers who didn't believe they could trust their people to be off the desk, you know, suddenly having their people off the desk for a year and performance has gone up right? Like people can accept change. They can deal with change. People can learn. The question is, do you create the incentives and do you create the environment to do that? And, yeah. and I think yeah. it can happen in any organization. It's it's really about, you know, it, it, and it has to happen at kind of a, a pod by pod level. If you give people... If you give leaders at all levels uh, what I call risk bans, if you say, here's the least amount of risk I'm going to allow you to take, I'm going to penalize you if you don't take this much risk, and here's the most risk I want you to take, and I'm going to penalize you if you take more than that and you don't ask me first. Right. And, and I think that's the, the other piece. And you don't ask me first. Then you can actually start scaling innovation. You can start scaling risk t- taking in your organization relatively quickly because it's tied to both carrots and sticks.
0: OK, well, I, I love that uh, risk bands as opposed to wristbands. Um, very interesting. Great. Let's move to the leaders. Um, I'm going to jump to something you probably wouldn't expect as a question, but I remember many years ago I interviewed the presidential candidate, Eugene McCarthy, and I said to him, of the seven deadly sins, which is the deadliest in politics— and he said, oh, sloth is a virtue in politics because the, <laughs> the worst le- legislation gets passed too quickly. and We haven't yep. thought it through, much less read the actual language. Mm-hmm. Let's go to leaders uh, in Catholicism. The seven deadly sins, just to remind you and listeners, are wrath, sloth, gluttony, avarice, lust, envy, and pride. Which one of these do you think is most fatal for a business leader uh, going through radical change?
1: uh pride absolutely pride. pride um and and you know i it's it's fascinating. I was talking to a fellow who a number of years ago was a super high flying c e o uh of of a tech startup and uh ended up having dinner with him the other night. And he really talked about that growth cycle. He was, you know, he was like, you know, one, on all the thirty under thirty lists, kind of thing. Uh, and he thought he was better than everybody else. as so that's kind of how he described it. And and he described this 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 trajectory in his life of that business failing and discovering that no, actually, he needed to be of service, you know, and his job was to, and you know, to learn from everybody else. And and kind of how much he's grown as a human and and how much he's shifted. Um, uh, how he does almost everything and and how honest he is about his shortcomings and his the the pain he is he experiences and and the the medical challenges uh he experiences uh, publicly and it was just this this shift in leadership, and you know the kids now you know thirty five maybe I look at him and i'm like okay i'm forty two he's gonna really be a great leader. And so there's this natural cycle, I think, for all of us of, of moving from avarice to humility. Um, You know, it's a painful process to (laughs) have your wings melt, but, uh, you know, most of us have to do it. And, um, you know, the, the question is, you know, how do you maintain that? How do you maintain that self-reflection after the fact? And how do you create the space as a leader to sustain the self-reflection? Because as we get Older as we get, fat, higher in organizations as we move to administration, you know, often you know, the question is how quickly can we get things off our plate? Right, we've got too much on our plate, um, and and it's always just important to create that space for self reflection. Am I in the right emotional space uh, to make this decision? Because if I'm in the wrong emotional space, it doesn't matter. Right, I'll still i'll, I'll make i'll make more wrong decisions. That's that's rarely better than you know making less right ones.
0: Yeah, no, I, I like that answer a lot. I, I would have chosen pride as well. Uh, next month, I'll be interviewing Jolie, the the former CEO of Best Buy. Oh, cool! Uh, and and in his book, he uh, he mentions at one point in this journey from from pride to greater humility, uh, he would offered you know chances for input from other people, and someone came back with a organizational chart where they've written in his name in every single box, given his tendency to want to control things. <laughs> and uh, at first, he was very offended by, by that joke. And then he said, well, you know, actually, there's a lot of truth to that, and, and I should be making a, a sea change myself. Um, so, yes, I, I think that really is part of, part of the journey that has to be made. Staying with the, the foibles of human nature, you have a, a, a figure 2.4 that's called Avoidable Causes of Failure. And you go into five of them. There's using binoculars instead of a radar, the elephant problem, fighting the last war, packing for the wrong trip, and surrendering to reality. They're, they all have wonderful names. I'm going to make you choose among your children. What, what's one of these you'd like to talk about just a bit?
1: Uh, I, I think the the elephant problem is the, the most tenacious challenge in um you know, in large organizations and matrixed organizations, you know, everyone not only sees a different piece of the challenge at different levels of the organization or in different functions, uh, but they see um, they're incentivized to only see different parts of the problem. I forget who who it was that said that. You know, it's awful hard to. I'm paraphrasing here, but it's it's awful hard to convince a man of a person whose salary depends on not seeing it. Yeah, that was Upton Sinclair. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> I'm
0: sure i H- trying- hard, hard for a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it.
1: Yes. And, and I think that's one of the great challenges is how do you uh, create an incentive structure? How do you create a process structure uh, that that allows both a mind meld and uh, an incentive to work for the, the, the common good and the common understanding as opposed to working for um, – uh, The functional good or the functional understanding and i I think one of the great challenges is that uh the second you shift from that that growth mindset or whatever we're calling it this week uh to you know to an optimization mindset and 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 uh you know the whatever we're calling that this week uh I, i think simon sinek calls it you know the infinite versus the finite mindset um you know, the, the, the challenge is that growth stops. Right. Like it turns out that understanding the elephant problem and and working on coordinating more effectively, uh, you know, allows you to be more agile in volatile times. And and that's what we're in. We're in volatile times. Right. And maybe in smooth seas, optimization is what gets you there. But the ability to to shift, to respond to changing environments, you know, that requires uh communication at all levels of the company, not just not just at the top. Like by the time problems and opportunities get to the top, it's it's too late.
0: Yeah. no, know my father was an executive at 3M Company. He said, you know, the problem with the higher I got up in the food chain, the uh, bigger the problems and the weaker the information that came to me from the lower levels, because everything got filtered by, you know, subordinates trying to uh, not get tagged with having been the messenger.
1: Well, and, and I think it's a twofold issue. I think that's one, not getting tagged with not. With being the messenger, the second is, you know, if you're in the C-suite and a company uh, the size of, um, of 3M, you are making so many decisions on a daily basis that if it takes more than 60 words to get information to you, you you can't absorb it. You don't. You literally don't have the time to absorb it, and so you get you get these snippets that get shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter, getting to the top. And so it's not just about incentives to hide information. It's that you know often <laughs> information is too complex uh, to to you know put into you know Fox News sound bites. Sure. Sounds like that old game telephone tag
0: that we played as a kid and the the message would go around the circle, whispered into one ear after another, and by the end it was garbled and (laughs) entirely not what it was originally. Absolutely. Yeah. So there is a solution here. I'm going to introduce it first by a wonderful quote from Anais Nin that you you offer in the book, which, by the way, is a very well-written book. And I love a lot of the historical analogies and uh, context that you bring in as examples. But you, you quote a nice name saying, we don't see things as they are. We see them as we are, mm-hmm. uh, given our terrible you know, predominance with going with biases, including the confirmation bias. But you have a solution, and it goes back to Sherlock Holmes, who you mentioned a bit ago, and it's the term abductive reasoning, which I admit I've never come across You know, phrased that way. What in the world is abductive reasoning for our listeners, and, and how does it figure into being a solution? Uh, to try to you know make one's way
1: forward so i I tried to hide my geek factor in the book, <laughs> <laughs> um, but we're going you, you've you've actually opened a Pandora's box. Um, so in <laughs> uh, in the study of epistemology, which is the study of how we know things. There are really four techniques for knowing things. There's deductive reasoning, which is when you have, uh, when you're pretty confident you have all of the information uh, and that it's reliable. How do you make sense of it? There's inductive reasoning, which is you know a lot of what happens in uh, in science, where it's we we take the the, the body of information uh, we assume is relatively accurate and we make an assessment of uh, what's the most likely thing. Abductive reasoning is, is often what happens when you don't have enough information yet and you start using conjecture and you say, hey, you know, what if uh, some of the information uh, I had wasn't accurate or what if a new piece of information occurred? What, how would that change my opinion? And then the fourth piece, and that's really what happens in Sherlock Holmes stories. He, uh, uh, he goes kind of through that method of, of like, what do I know I know? Uh, what do I know i don't know um and what do i what can't i know and he kind of goes he consistently goes through that process of of asking those questions um and the fourth method is is uh what's called Bayesian reasoning or Bayesian modeling, which is how kind of artificial intelligence works where you where you have you create kind of a systems model uh kind of think about think of it as like uh wiring up you know uh Wiring up uh, uh, facts, you know, with spaghetti of what's linked to what, uh, and then uh, looking at the probability of one thing or another, and, and how they kind of stack up. So this is like if you ever see like spy shows, whenever they've got the uh, you know the the pictures of people and and, and the yarn you know li- you know that's you know tacked between them. That's kind of what they're doing there. Uh, and so those are kind of the four ways of figuring out problems. Um, and, and for me, when I'm dealing with new situations, uh, when I'm dealing with the future where, you know, I know that I don't have enough information and I know that probably some of my information is wrong, I tend toward that abductive method of, of starting off with what do I know? Uh, what do I know I don't know? And then then what can't I know or what? what what where might i be making the wrong assumptions. and well you can't actually answer every question that way you can answer a lot more than you would imagine.
0: okay. You no know, i i used to do research myself and uh, i would say to clients you know there's a bunch of information here but this little data point here that's the real story. <laughs> right. because I, I think if you follow that down the rabbit's hole you're actually going to get to a, a real answer and the rest of the stuff is yeah you know, nice to have but it's kind of noise actually. so let me make sure i have this right so we we got the deductive and the inductive and that's kind of standard but it's the abductive and the bayesian modeling that sounds like the new stuff you're bringing in really has maybe more potential
1: a lot of times it's it's i think how we we've been doing a lot of abductive thinking over the last you know sort of 100 years uh, was was Really, de- that concept was initially developed by a guy named Charles Sanders Pierce, uh, I believe, in the in the eighteen ni- eighties, about the time that Sherlock's Holmes stories started being written. In the nineteen nineties, a guy named Judea Pearl developed this idea called Bayesian modeling, uh, and that's you know how a lot of artificial intelligence works. That's how Google works. That's how uh, you know search engines, um, you know, auction websites like Kayak work. Uh, they they use Bayesian models, and we use it a lot in science. We use it a lot in decision making. Um, It's how Amazon, you know, a lot of how Amazon optimizes its business and why it's been able to be so predictive uh, and resilient about, uh, you know, over the last uh, year is really that it understands. What happens if, if, you know, something stacks up in China or something, you know, some, you know, it combines with, you know, a hurricane in Japan and, and whatnot, they're able to actually uh, pressure test their, their system in that way. Uh, it's how we're starting to look at things like climate modeling today like uh you know one of the big things that's coming out right now is the uh, new ipcc reports un reports uh, about the potential risks uh, of climate change and well 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 the range of uh, probability is is really large right the range of possible futures and and those analyses is really large what's interesting is this is the first time we can look with any accuracy at what the world might look like 50 years from now a hundred years from now you know, I, I read that report fairly
0: in depth and I, I agree with you the precision of the forecast although they still had a you know understandably wider band than one might want
1: it's to be fair uh, it's it's a wider band than, than the news says also um, but the point the point is this is the first time we've literally been able to see the future yeah yeah In human history it's a, it's a it's a profound break and I think we need to think about what that means for our organizations.
0: No, no. I I like that part. I mean, I like the book overall, but I I very much like that part because you made the point that uh, we so often just stop at the inductive and the deductive. And as you mentioned in the book, if I'm not wrong, you know, logic, we, we imagine that's logic, but logic has all sorts of biases that we fall into and logic is often not as logical as we imagine. And then you're just telling me now that we have, thanks to the Victorians, we have Abductive Conjecture and Sherlock Holmes. And now you're telling me that thanks to the computer scientists and geeks, we have Bayesian modeling a century later. And both of those give us some new opportunities to try to, you know, survive these rogue waves. Is that a fair summary?
1: Uh, Not only survive them, but start to understand where and when they could happen. Sure. Right when you do when you look at when a hurricane's about to hit, where whether it's you know whether it's going to hit you know Florida or North Carolina, you know that's Bayesian modeling.
0: And, and in fact, even beyond just surviving, also thriving potentially, taking the advantage from this information.
1: The, the companies that look at resilience seriously uh, tend to be the companies that do better in disruption. And it turns out that oftentimes, Uh, Not only do they outperform their peers uh, in disruptive circumstances, they take that growth and they sustain it over time.
0: Okay. I, I was just recently at the funeral of a, of a friend of mine. His father was a uh, physics professor. And so in the funeral, the, the uh, pastor said, you know, a, a body in motion tends to stay in motion. And that's one of the laws of physics. Yeah. Uh, in the book, you have something, the second law of thermodynamics, which is the natural progress of any closed system is toward greater disorder. I was fascinated by that. Can you unpack for me what the implications are for business? Um, is, is there kind so, of an in- yeah. in- entropy so, so, that's happening yeah, inside businesses because you, you just are, you're, you're closed down too much to recognize you're about to get swamped? Is it something different?
1: Well, I, I, I think that, you know, the, the reality of any complex system, any, any time you put enough energy into a system, eventually it breaks. You know, we, we looked at COVID and we, you know, it was really easy to look at this and say, this is a hundred year disease. I mean, the reality is actually, no, it, it wasn't. We were getting better at preventing hundred year diseases and they were happening more frequently. And, you know, what happened with COVID is a whole bunch of things uh, occurred to increase the probability of a spark and a whole bunch of things that occurred to increase the rate of spread when, when it did happen. And so when we, you take a look at any system, any complex system, and you say, this thing is never going to break, I don't know if you experience <laughs> the same reality I do, but that is a foolish decision. <laughs> um, and, and so when I talk about entropy, that's, that's really what I'm talking about, right? Like the world blows up. And, and if we start with that assumption, we can take advantage of it.
0: Yeah. No, I, one of the things I I loved in the book is you mentioned a a friend and you go through this exercise where you, I I don't remember what term it is, something chess. And, uh, one of the things is to play the antagonist and, uh, you know, challenge, uh, the assumptions that are built in and then see what survives and and maybe add more options into the package. So you get to something that has better probability of working. And
1: and by the, absolutely and and what we're doing is really a human version of what artificial intelligence does. Right, is is creating a situation where uh, both of us play both sides with well, the way we work is is what we call the uh, chess tournament. And so the guy's name is Ted Salker. He's uh, one of the America's great inventors. And we take four ideas for solutions to a problem. And one of us argues for it. One of us argues against, against the first one. And we do it for a few minutes. And we go to the next one and the next one and the next one. Every time we, we blow one idea up, we add another one to the, uh, to the cycle. And the reason we do that is because you, know, you can remember about three things typically, not four. And so uh, three complex things, not four. And so we're constantly renewing. And because we're, we're constantly playing both sides of, of the, uh, the, the problem, we're not emotionally invested in one or the other. And so we, we, because of that process, uh, we offset a lot of human biases that normally limit decision-making and, yeah, and no. limit innovation.
0: I, I think it's great. I mean, you need you need the honest feedback. Uh, I think you know it in the book, particularly from your friends, uh, to, to make, make some progress on these things. So I want to thank you, Jonathan, so much for having been my guest. This is episode number 67, Leading Through Radical Change. Uh, Jonathan Brill is the author of Rogue Waves, Future Proof Your Business to Survive and Profit from Radical Change. If you've enjoyed today's episode, of course, please give it a rating or review on iTunes. You can check out other episodes by visiting my company's website at the obligatory three W's and sensorylogic.com or go to the New Books Network website and search by typing in the show's name. That is, of course, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. Finally, I like to conclude every episode with an epigram. In this case, I took one from Peter Drucker, who you do mention in the book, Jonathan. And this one is, the greatest danger in times of turbulence is not the turbulence, it is to act with yesterday's logic. Until next time, be kind and stay safe.